Welcome, welcome family. Once again, this is Remnant Nation Live Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for stopping by to listen in once again. I'm going to try to make sure that this is not long, but yet at the same time, I need to say what I want to say. And of course, I've, we've been giving you dots and I've been mentioning certain dots, right? And I, if memory serves me correctly, we got to dot number four. Well, uh, that's not the end of the dots, right? One of the last dots that I want to mention is going to be dot number five. What dot is that? Well, I'm so glad you asked. It is none other than the dot where we consider what the word of God is. In fact, what is the word of God? Who says that a certain writing is the word of God? And whatever it is that they have stipulated to be the word of God, how do we know that we have that? Now, for those of you that are erudite and who perhaps are uh, masters in your own right of the written language, uh, immediately what will come to mind is the discipline which includes the art and the science, right? The discipline of textual criticism. Now, if you're like me back in the day when I first heard textual criticism, <laughs> well, first thing I thought was, I, you know, I could just envision some egghead behind a desk with a, with a big marker, right? Scratching out portions of the Bible, saying that this isn't true, that isn't true. And I thought, yeah, here's some atheist that's just going to rip it all up, right? And... As it turns out, that really is not the case with textual criticism. I, I think many of us, uh, we follow the modern day connotation of criticism and we think that someone is being extra critical and harsh concerning a, a given work, right? A, a work of art. Um, long story short, that's not what textual criticism is. What textual criticism does, and in fact, I can I can respect textual criticism for a number of different reasons, because it removes the romanticism from the writings and from things, especially the religious works. It, it removes the romantic air that surrounds them, right? Uh, which basically comes from a history of dogma whereby you're not allowed to question certain things and of course you fall in love with it it becomes true and you just know it to be wonderful and true and factual and so no one can even ask a question about it in fact if you ask a question leading to the the, the scrutinizing or the questioning of it as far as its veracity and validity people will look at you as if you're you know oh child spawn of satan you know how dare you this is blasphemy but we have to keep in mind that even our Elohim in Tanakh said, you know what, let us reason together, all right? Let's 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 sit down at the table and let's reason together. Let's, let's think this thing out. Let's talk this thing out, which lets you know that our Elohim is not afraid of your intellectual prowess. He's not afraid of your ability to put two and two together and get four. He's not afraid at all. In fact, he welcomes the opportunity for you to uh, employ some gray matter and begin to think about things critically. And there is much more that I could say about that, especially when, when we consider calendrical systems and the way that we are, uh, the, the, the way that we're supposed to observe certain practices and certain rites and certain feasts, okay? But I won't, you know, it, it seems like every podcast I'm mentioning at least three or four things that we're going to talk about at a later time. Uh, 
yet at the same time, I just want to say that our Elohim is not afraid of our mental capacities. And so when we consider something like textual criticism, textual criticism basically, and I can respect it, it just removes all of the romance and it looks at the text critically and says, okay, here is a particular style of writing right that differs from this next verse so therefore we have a difference either we have someone else writing or the genre of writing itself has changed for a particular reason and there's many other things that they consider right more so than those two things but long story short they look at the text critically all right go through it with the fine-tooth comb and they note the differences and then they uh, once again uh, here's this concept again of connecting the dots they then connect the dots and they say you know what one of these things is not like the other one of these things does not belong okay i'm not going to sing that but you get the point and they begin to simply go about their business and they say hey uh, in all honesty, here's a difference, so let's deal with this. And so out of this, out of this, we gain a picture of how things went back in the day. Now, when it comes to the Word of God, uh, the way that the ancients embraced sacred literature is different than what we ourselves consider to be sacred literature. For instance, por ejemplo, mis queridas, for example, my dears, when you take a look at what the word of God was back in the day, in fact, because of the findings, uh, the Judean, you know, the, the, the Judean documents in the desert, uh, the Qumran findings, they found that when you like, let's take a, oh, let's take anyone like, let's take, um, Let's take Levi, who was the father of, of Aaron and, and Moshe, right? Well, they have found that because they are prominent figures, it was, it was open game for an individual to take such a figure as a Levi or a David or anyone else that's written in scripture and expand and expound upon their stories. And it was considered to be the word of our Elohim. Now, here's how they could do that. Now, I've mentioned a little bit of this before, but it's the difference between progressive revelation and perpetual revelation. In other words, as long as you kept the truths intact, you could then expand and expound upon the story to give further insight and color to the truths that had been previously written and previously noted. Now, for them, hey, there was no problem. And so there was a kind of fluidity with the ancient scriptures or manuscripts. There was a fluidity that we do not have today because I believe that we have been somehow um, led to believe that if something is true, it's got to be true in date and in time. We got to have photographs, fingerprints, blood samples. There's got to be ample evidence and not just one piece of evidence, but we have to have multiple pieces of evidence because our pseudoscience mentality tells us that empirical data uh, has to somehow 
line up in a certain way and once it does then we can say that it's a fact and that it's true and if we don't find this in ancient literature if we don't find this in the things that we're researching well then we have a problem with it but the mindset of, of the ancients was not so they actually embraced a fluidity to scripture and to text and there was if you will an open canon as opposed to a closed canon like we understand there to be today. Now, the, the closed canon that we have today, of course, I'm, I'm considering to knock. Um, Rabbi Akiva had a lot to do with the canon that we have today, right? And there are books that they excluded from the canon, and they said, hey, by the way, if any of you want to pick up some of these books that we are saying not to read, you will have no, you will have absolutely no inheritance in the life and in the world to come. Now, that being the case, that means that those writings, right, uh, are, are not only prohibited, but guess what? All that those writings would yield changes the context and, and changes everything as far as what we understand to be the Word of God to be. And, but not only that, it also changes the very thing that we understand to be a practice and a flow, that that fluid flow and that uh, the ability to flow in context and in the stories and in the history with an expounded nature, we, we lose all of that. And so it becomes, it becomes something that is cut and something that is dry from this book to this book, no other books. And by the way, the Pharisees or the Pedushim, they introduce their brand of fluidity, if you will, with the interpretations. So you have one level of interpretation uh, you know, superseding another level of interpretation. And then here's another level of interpretation. And by the time you get done, you have a level of um, interpretation that is so far beyond the, the normal, plain, everyday, simple understanding of the text until you wonder, well, how could you, how can you get this out of that? How can you, you know, how can you get this particular concept that you're saying out of a particular verse, you know, um, for instance, for instance, it is, it is written in scripture and this is just something small. It is written in scripture that you are not to boil a kid in its mother's milk. In other words, if you have an animal and you have the mother and you have the kid, uh, you're not to, you're not to boil, right? You're not to cook that that child of that mother being an animal in the milk of that mother why because that milk its purpose was to nourish and to bring health and to increase the longevity not to be a part of that <laughs> of that child's demise and to be a part of that child being served up on someone's plate no that wasn't the purpose but this is taken this is taken to mean now if you have a cheeseburger you can't have cheese on your cheeseburger in fact you don't eat cheeseburgers why because you can't boil a kid in its mother's milk well 
see, once again, these are interpretations upon interpretations upon interpretations. And, uh, right. Who am I to, who am I to even mention such a thing, right? How, how dare I mention that there are interpretations upon interpretations that, that go farther and farther away from home court. Bottom line of it is the word of God that we understand to be so, uh, is predominantly written in Hebrew, except for a few places. Like we can, you know, there, there's, and I, I don't even want to say that there's five places. Like for instance, in Daniel second chapter verses four through seven, and then verse 28, that's one. Um, also in Ezra uh, chapter, chapter four, right? We also have some, some Aramaic and you know, we, we've got Aramaic, we've got Aramaic in, in just, you know, a, a couple of different, a couple of different places, uh, in, in the Tanakh, right. But predominantly it is written in Hebrew. Now where the Aramaic comes in, Aramaic comes in due to the Babylonian captivity where the children of Israel began to be once again, culturally persuaded by their captors. And so the language, the lingua franca actually became Aramaic. And so that's why we have, that's why we have some Aramaic, right? Even in the scriptures. So, uh, by the time you get to Ezra four, um, you know, uh, chapter four and, and, and eight through, you know, um, uh, what is it? 11, I want to say, uh, perhaps even 16 and then um, 18. Also, Ezra, the seventh chapter, uh, I want to say verse 12 all the way through to 26. And then there's Aramaic and Jeremiah 10 and 11. Um, Aramaic is in the Bible, right? And in fact, some have said, well, there's also Aramaic in Psalms. And no, there isn't. And, and I disagree with that strongly, right? Um, and, and they say that it's in the, oh, see, see, let me not go there. Okay. Let me just, let me just stick to my point. So when you take a look at the scriptures, the scriptures themselves are said to be the word of God. And in them, we discover what God did, what God said. And not only that, we also discover the intents and the purposes of this divine being right now. When you get, once again, when you get into situations where the name of God is not mentioned and God is not mentioned forthright, we have to question whether or not that really is the word of God or not. That's why the book of Esther could be considered more so a part of history, if you will, as opposed to it being something that is that is in the scriptural canon. In fact, the modern day understanding of the book of Esther is that our Elohim is hidden behind the scenes. And so because he's hidden behind the scenes, he's there, right? He's there, but he's hidden behind the scenes. And the only problem I have with that is if we take that out of Tanakh and then apply that to the New Testament, then you have to say that our Elohim is also in the entirety of the New Testament. He's there, but he's hidden, right? Um, you could also apply that same principle. But wait a minute. I think the outcome becomes different when we consider the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament. Because once again, because of that concept 
of progressive revelation where things get turned on its head and you end up going 180 degrees um, out of out of the original plan. And so that being the case, I mean, you know, by the time the New Testament gets done with you because of progressive revelation, mainly through the mouth of the Apostle Paul, uh, you find once again that, you know, where <laughs> we're in Tanakh, there's no way that a man would even be revered and worship as God. When, when you consider the Tanakh, I mean, there is there is no greater leader or deliverer than Moshe and no greater king than that of uh, Hezekiel uh, or, or Hezekiah. Um, there is there's no greater, you know, um, worshiper and individual who is a man after Yah's own heart like David. But yet no one prayed in their name, right? No one prayed in their name. In fact, when you read uh, in Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, and uh, even when you read, not not just Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, but when you read in Exodus and you begin to see how uh, our Elohim said, you know what, I'm not going with you guys. And let me just stop here for a moment. He says, you know what, I'm not going with you guys because you guys are just too much. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll mess around and hurt you. I, you know, I want to kill you now, but I'm not going to be vexed by this. Here's an angel. I'm going to have this angel to go with you, right? And our Elohim never, ever told them to even pray in that angel's name. He said that this angel has my name written, right? He has my name within him. He's got my name. And so, uh, you know, just do what he says. But they were to pray in his name. They yet addressed their prayers unto our Elohim. So wait a minute. So now that you have the New Testament, the New Testament says, well, Jesus said to pray in his name. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did he really say to pray in his name? Because how can you say that Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 17 through 19, A, keep the commandments, right? Which is, you shall have no other gods before me, right? It's our Elohim. It's him, right? And you are not to have any other God before him. So... But yet when it comes to salvation, Christianity honors the son above the father, right? And says that the father has given all things into his hand, right? He has all power in heaven and in earth. And but wait, 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 wait. If, if you really look at the text very critically, you will find that everything that relates to Israel and everything that relates to our Elohim has been taken and put in the lap of Yeshua called Jesus, and he is made to be God, and the church is made to be the new Israel. Now, I'm getting a little long-winded here. The bottom line of it is, the word of God is that which we, of course, have believed to be the word of God, that that is given to us by means of the scriptures, that that has been handed down through generations. And it is a matter of faith as to whether an individual believes in the word of God or not. The Bible itself is a book that is highly spiritual and highly esoteric. I mean, if I were to mention to you some of the subjects of the Bible, some of the some of the instances and just paraphrase some of them, like angels coming down from heaven and seeing women and having giant babies with them, or how about an axe head floating in the water and defying the laws of physics? How about the sun standing still for a full 24 hour period? 
you know, there's many things that I could mention, but the Bible is a supernatural book. The Tanakh is a supernatural book. There are angels. There are spirits. There are evil spirits. There are adversarial spirits. Uh, there are talking animals and there are healings and diverse miracles. Uh, there are mystical men who are able to hear miles away from where they perhaps live and reside. So bottom line of it is the Bible is a spiritual book. It's a, it's a mystical book and the, it is virtually impossible for an individual to embrace it without a level of belief in the paranormal. You have to. Otherwise, there's no way that you could ascribe to the Bible as being a relevant book. Okay. Now, with that being stated, my point for this podcast is really to shore up the point and to kind of give further discussion into the Tanakh and us being Tanakh only, and to simply state very plainly that we believe the Tanakh to be the scriptures. As I close, if you take a look at the book of Matthew and line those up, in fact, grab your, get a couple of Bibles, right? Get two of the same Bibles and take your Bible and go to the book of Matthew and every place where it says, and this was written so that it might be fulfilled and then do a a Old Testament reference, you will find out that every one of those references in the book of Matthew, which was intended to bring about a Hebrew parallel to Christianity and to bring about basically to, to, to co-sign, if you will, and to make Christianity kosher, okay, uh, every one of those references are absolutely wrong, and it does not say what it says. Either there have been words taken away, or there have been words added, and I'll give you an example as I close, as I finish. Uh, remember when Yeshua, called Jesus, was being baptized. When he was being baptized, the Bible says that the heavens opened, and what they heard was, this is my beloved son. Now, wait a minute. The next five words that, that comes out of the scripture's mouth is, in whom I am well pleased. Those six words, in whom I am well pleased. I said five, there's really six. So when, when this is said, this actually takes the place of the other five original words that are in the Old Testament, which is, this day have I begotten thee. They could not have that in the scriptures because that would mean that Yeshua, called Jesus, was actually brought forth and created at a given point and at a given time. The reason why, the reason why they changed that was simply because they could say that he was eternally God and that he existed from eternity past. Well, when you take a look at what the New Testament calls scripture, which is Tanakh, it doesn't line up. Bottom line, the New Testament is highly suspect. Highly suspect. And I state emphatically that we are once again Tanakh only, and that when anyone mentions Scripture, please understand dot number five. Dot number five is that we see the Tanakh as scripture period not the new testament 
but the Tanakh. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back. This is Malkia Uriel, and we'll talk to you soon. Well, hey, once again, we're back at you. This is Melky Oriel, and yes, this is another Remnant Nation live podcast. I'm glad that you're back with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate your patronage. I'm so glad that you're finding value in what I'm rambling about. So, hey, listen, I think this is going to be one of the last dots, okay? Listen, I know I know, I said that last time, right? But this dot is a huge dot. What dot might that be? Well, before I mention that dot, as always, I need you to stop by and visit our affiliates at remnantnation.live. It's all together, remnantnation.live. That's the main website. Stop in, connect with us, as well as Navi Bayit Academy. As we have mentioned before, you can take the Hebrew memorization course there for the Hebrew alphabet. And, and, wait for it, wait for it, also, another sponsor, is the Hebraic Living Dot com website that's hebraic living.com and last but not least is brewbook.live it's not facebook it's brewbook well which dot am i referring to yes it's dot number six and it is huge it's a doozy because this is the dot of hate so Uh, This is one of those negative dots, right? Because what I'm telling you, point blank, emphatically, flat-footedly, we are not a hate group. Now, listen, I have to mention this because there is a process underway whereby those who bear the title Hebrew Israelite are being uh, targeted for... You know, the, the, okay, here's, here's how it works. Here's how it works. Um, Think about it, if you will, how society needs an enemy to fight against in order to galvanize a people. And this has happened many times before, and it'll happen again. I don't want it to be with the Hebrew Israelites because they're being, now, I I will say this, they're being targeted, right, And, and labeled. Now, some will say, see, see, that's just the will of our God. That's the will of our Elohim. See, they talked about the prophets just like they did in the Bible days. Well, yeah, and they killed the prophets too. So you can't you can't think about it as if oh, this is just, you know, they just hating on us. No, you need to understand that there is also a plan that can be put into motion, and the beginning of the plan is demonization. It's called demonization before extermination. I'll say it again. Demonization before extermination. They demonize you. They pose you as the problem. A few false flag operations, right? With someone looking like you, some paid actors, and then there you go. All of society joins together to get rid of this, you know, this this hell spawn from Satan, right? This this demon spawn that's plaguing our society, and then there you go. It's called once again demonization before extermination, and this has happened to people groups all over the planet. It's happened to uh, organizations here. In fact, those of you who who remember. Uh, back in the day, I mean, COINTELPRO was hot and heavy. And the listen, listen, this was not some side group. 
that was orchestrating all the ins and outs of COINTELPRO, this was the federal government, right? This was the government of the United States. And listen, what they did was they said, well, there's a couple of things that we need to do. We have to make absolutely sure that we maintain, number one, that we maintain our social order and that we also not only maintain the social order, but that we also make sure that there will never, ever at any point in time be a Messiah to come and to resurrect and to raise these people up and to give them what they're looking for. So uh, with that being stated, let me say a couple of things. Let me say a couple of things. One, what they're saying is what you consider to be the status quo and what you consider to be, you know, an oppressive society. They're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, Hoss. This is what we want. This is what we're willing to invest dollars in. And this is what the government is also also investing its dollars and its manpower and its most powerful military in to maintain. Why? Because with it, with it, they maintain, of course, their level of power and their structure of power uh, economically, socially, and politically all over the world. Now, that being stated, uh, let me focus on the second point. And I know I'm talking about demonization then extermination right um this has happened this happens with groups that are deemed to be hate groups right we are definitely not a hate group but but let me focus on the second point here which is that they don't want a messiah to arise right they don't want a messiah to arise and even to bring about a situation of social equality can't have it that's why they said we are equal but separate uh and that was only on paper the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th amendments. Uh, oh, see, okay, look, look, okay. I don't, I don't want to. Uh, oh, okay, let me, let me do the backstroke here because I'm getting ready to get on the soapbox and I need to climb down before I ever get up. So, one point that I want to make is that they said that there will, there should never be a Messiah that will rise up in order to liberate these people. Well, here's my point. Think, if you will. Now, I told you that we connect dots. So think, if you will. Think about the fact that the Greco-Roman derivation of Messiah is Christ or Christos, right? In the Greek, it's Christos. Well, well, well. So if they're fighting against a Messiah that's going to liberate a people who are estranged and ostracized, then are they not admitting that they're a system of Antichrist? And are they not admitting that? Is is that not true? Yes, it's true. So you don't have to wait for the Antichrist to appear. The Antichrist is already here. And it's already, its systems are already well in play. And bottom line of it is, it's something that you and I are already living in and are experiencing. With that being stated, I just simply want to say that we're not a hate group. Okay, tongue in cheek. What is one of the first things that hate groups say? We're not a hate group. <laughs> what is what is one of the first things that someone who is racially biased and prejudiced, what is one of the first things that they will say? I'm not biased. I'm not prejudiced. In fact, I have a black friend, right? Well, yes, it's true. Anyone can say that we're not a hate group, right? Therefore, I say watch what we do. Watch who we are. You're not going to see us plotting, planning, and trying to, you know, 
destroy governments and peoples and you know do bodily harm to people no we won't do that and and i will say this okay one of the second points that i want to make um or i should say the second point that i want to make is that we're not a member of any camp any hebrew israelite camp we don't even consider ourselves to be hebrew israelites because once again the term has become negatively um you know there's a there's a negative connotation and it's already being beaten up and it's already gaining a a stigma as being you know all oh, those are hate groups those are hate people and and listen listen here's the reason why here's the reason why because you've got individuals who are you know, street prophets or corner street prophets, right? And I'm not knocking them. I commend them for what they do. They're bold. They, some of them are putting their lives on the line and they are preaching and teaching the word of our Elohim, right? Uh, and I commend them for that. But where, listen, I got to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me, yeah. I do not agree with their philosophy. Their philosophy is we're going to stand on this corner and we're going to, you know, we're going to call you out of your name. And not only that, we're going to tell you that you're going to be our slave. Listen, that's foolishness. It's foolishness from a strategic standpoint. It's foolishness from a logistic standpoint. It's foolishness from a social standpoint. It's foolish on many, many levels. You can say all you want. Well, it's in the scripture that this is going to listen. You can say that all you want, right? But it does not you're pointing to something that the people group that is in power right now absolutely fear, absolutely hate. And we've seen what happens when this particular people group becomes insecure and afraid, right? They already hate you. Why give them a reason? You are threatening, you're speaking out of your mouth things that only our Elohim can bring to pass. So why not just be quiet on that? And if he's going to do it, let him do it, right? If not, then just keep teaching and preaching. Listen, pour that energy into solidifying us as a people. Pour that energy into being right and doing right, being righteous, being holy, and not trying to sleep with 12-year-old girls, okay? Uh, Yes, I said it, right? So... Here's my point. And I, I'm not saying that all of them are doing that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Um, th- there's there's a couple of brothers out there that are like, yeah, you know, when we get to heaven or glory, whatever, we're going to, you know, be able to sleep with, you know, no one wants to sleep with a 12 year old girl, please. Uh, every man needs a woman, right? Um, anyway, anyway, let me get down off the soapbox. But my point of it is that when you incite the insecurity of a people who are already afraid of their genetic annihilation, you're simply giving them a reason. Don't give them a reason. When an individual, it is written in Proverbs, that when an individual grabs the ears of a dog, he can expect to get bitten. Don't meddle in areas of strife, right? Don't do things unnecessarily. Let our Elohim judge who he's going to judge. Now, that's an excellent segue into my last point, is that our Elohim deals with people First of all, based upon their individuality, right? Everyone has to make a decision. Everyone has to walk accordingly and circumspectly to the laws of our Elohim. Yet at the same time, our Elohim deals with us in terms of people groups, mainly national people groups. Wait a minute, wait a minute. When you look throughout Tanakh, you will find that the judgments that come upon people groups are done through their sense and through their affiliations 
of nationhood. In other words, what they are as a nation. Keep in mind that we talked about nationhood and how Tanakh looks at nationhood, that it begins with the spiritual, with the esoteric. It begins with the psychological, the mental, the spiritual. And then it goes from there into a full-blown people group called a nation. First, just like with Abraham, using Abraham as an example, Abraham could do the right thing. He could stand. He had mores. He had he had the the ability to uh, do what was right. He had the ability to stick to a God given plan. He was a man that was faithful, a man that was honorable, a man that had integrity. Our Elohim looked at him and said, "You know what? I'm going to make a great nation of you, just like He did Moshe." Right? Um, Moshe didn't want him to do it, right? But nonetheless, nationhood begins with the inward, and this is what happens. When an individual has the inward makeup that is necessary, it is then that they will show and demonstrate physically through action that what they have within is true without. When that happens, an individual steps into a level of wholeness. Once wholeness is embraced, then that individual can go through a process of multiplication whereby they're an individual, they multiply, and that individual then has a spouse, right? Multiplying once again, that spouse multiplies with both of them together and then they become a family, right? Multiplication happens again and they become a family. Multiplication happens again and that family becomes a community. Multiplication happens again and that community becomes a nation, right? This is the way our Elohim looks at nations and he looks at people groups. Judgment does come upon people groups. And I will say this, there's no need for you to stand on the corner and talk about what our Elohim is going to do to other people groups. Pour the energy into us being whole, pour the energy into us being righteous, pour the energy into us doing and being what we're supposed to be. Imagine, if you will, if what you said came true. Listen, we don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the social structure or the political structure. We don't have what we need as a people group to even step into a position of power because we're not in power, right? We're not ready to lead, but yet we're saying, well, they need to be, you know, dethroned. Well, you're not ready to take the throne, so they're not going to be dethroned. See, there I go again, getting on a soapbox. Okay, let me let me calm down. Let me calm down. Breathing deep, giving her a couple of woosahs, right? So here we go. Here we go. Here we go. My last point simply is that we need to pour energy into us being who we're supposed to be, right? He deals with us according to nations. So let's be a nation of people from the inside out that is righteous and holy before him. And I just simply want to state dot number six is huge. It's humongous. It's the fact that we are not a hate group. Neither are we connected with any hate groups. And we are not a member of any Hebrew Israelite alphabet group. We are who we are. We are Remnant Nation Live. Thank you very much for joining us again. Check out our affiliates. And for those of you that would like, listen, uh, hop online with us. We do alphabet coaching. That's right. We tap into the energy of our Elohim and we coach using the Hebrew alphabet. Hop online with us. And you know what? Hopefully we can get you in a session. We can coach you and get you in a session. And uh, for those of you that will listen again, hey, we'll see you next podcast. Lehi throat. We'll see you later.